You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony. Victimhood has a perverse and alluring currency on the left and the right, and it can make people do stupid things like fake a hate crime. Now, I'm not talking about who you think I'm talking about. I haven't tweeted about who you think I'm talking about or written about who you think I'm talking about or talked about who you think I'm talking about on this show. When that story first broke, I decided to wait, not because I didn't think the crime as described couldn't possibly have happened but because people do file false reports. That is also a thing that happens. So yeah, to be clear, I am not talking about the person you think I'm talking about. The person everyone has been talking about on Twitter and Facebook and Good Morning America and Colbert for weeks. Nope, I'm talking about the gay man in Florida who claimed he'd been abducted by three black men. I'm talking about the lesbian in Nebraska who claimed that three masked men broke into her home and carved anti-gay slurs into her flesh. I'm talking about the gay college student in Wisconsin who claimed a masked man broke into his apartment and put a rope around his neck and attempted to strangle him. Not for being gay, but for being a Republican. Quick aside, the same conservative media outlets now scolding reporters at mainstream outlets for believing the guy you probably thought I was talking about. They didn't wait for the results of the investigation in the case of the gay college Republican who claimed that someone had put a rope around his neck. They pushed that one hard because victimhood has a perverse and alluring currency on the left and the right. All three of these hate crimes, the ones I am talking about, lit up Twitter and Facebook and news broadcasts. There were protests, there were rallies, and all three were faked by the alleged victims. False hate crime reports are a real problem, and not just because every time something like this happens, every time someone falsely reports a hate crime, people are then less likely to believe hate crime reports filed by people who aren't lying, by actual victims. A false hate crime report harms actual victims of hate crimes in the same way that false rape reports harm actual victims of rape. They make it easier for bigots and rapists to get away with their crimes because they make it easier for people to pretend that anti-LGBT violence is a myth and easier for people to refuse to believe women who come forward to report a rape. False hate crime reports do something else, though, too, something we don't talk about, something that if we're going to apply hate crime statutes fairly, we do need to talk about. A false hate crime report is itself a hate crime. When a racist shitstain terrorizes an African-American family by burning a cross on their lawn, the African-American family next door, the African-American family down the street, all the African-American families in town are terrorized too. When an anti-Muslim bigot attacks a woman wearing a hajib, all the Muslims in that community, all the Muslims across the country that makes the news are made to feel unsafe. When a homophobic piece of shit finds a gay guy to beat up, which happened last night in Salt Lake City and there's video, it's not just an attack on that one gay man. That queer person is obviously the immediate and most traumatized victim of that attack, but all members of the queer community are impacted by anti-queer hate crimes. We are all made to feel unsafe, fearful, and threatened. Hate crime statutes, they don't make it extra illegal to punch someone because they're black, queer, or Muslim. For the record, hate crime statutes apply when people are singled out for attack because they're white, straight, or Christian, too. 
Hate crime statutes, the additional penalties that kick in when hate crime charges are brought, address the impact hate crimes have on whole communities. The damage they do to the fabric of our society, and because there are additional victims, there are additional penalties. So when a queer person makes a false hate crime report, others in the community are impacted, others in the community are terrorized. The false filer of a false hate crime report victimizes other members of their own community in the same way that someone who commits a violent hate crime does. I remember that Nebraska story in particular, the woman who claimed that three guys broke into her house, tied her up, and carved anti-gay slurs into her arms and stomach. Nebraska isn't a particularly welcoming place for queer people to begin with. And queer Nebraskans told reporters at the time that they were now afraid to leave the house. They thought they would be next. They worried about copycat crimes. So that false report of a hate crime had the same impact on the queer community in Nebraska that an actual hate crime would have had. And if that woman had actually been assaulted, hate crime charges would have been brought against the men who attacked her, in addition to the charges they would have faced for the assault. Charges that took into account the harm these men had done to other members of the queer community. The other people they had terrorized, if they had existed, which they did not. The attackers in Nebraska didn't exist, just like the attackers in Wisconsin in that particular case didn't exist, just like the attackers in Miami in that other case I mentioned didn't exist. These crimes were faked, but the harm done by the false reports was real. So by the logic of hate crime statutes, additional victims, additional penalties, someone who lies about being the victim of a hate crime shouldn't just be charged with making a false statement to the police. They should also be charged with committing a hate crime. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads, Dr. Lucy Platt, professor of public health epidemiology, joins me to discuss the health impacts that criminalization of sex work has on sex workers. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Damon. I am a 21-year-old lesbian living in the Southeast. I have a question for you about having sex with a really good friend of mine. So I went out with some of my roommates last night and some other friends. And one of my friends, she's been one of my closest friends through all of college. And um, her and her boyfriend have been together now for a year. But she came out to me as bisexual recently. And there's never been any sexual tension between us before this, even though we have made out before, sort of in like a drunken party situation. Anyway, we both had a lot to drink last night. And I told her if she was ever feeling like exploring um, the female side of her bisexuality, which she hasn't done before, that she knew where to find me. And her response was essentially, I'm so glad you said something because I wanted to say something, but I didn't think you would be into it. So now we're at a stage where she is exploring this with her boyfriend and seeing if there's any sort of accommodation that her and her boyfriend could come to for her, which she seems to think that they can. So my question for you is about my end of things. Um, I am not dating anyone at the moment, so there's nothing complicated in terms of my relationship status. But I just want to know if you have any tips on how to do this without jeopardizing our friendship. 
there's no way to do something like this. There's no way to fuck someone, to fuck a friend, to fuck a friend who's got a significant other already without jeopardizing your friendship. But no risk, no reward. If you don't risk at least jeopardizing the friendship, you won't enjoy the reward of getting into this woman's pants. And you say there's no sexual tension. I do not believe you. If when you two are at a party, you wind up drunkenly making out more than once, there is some sexual pull. There is some sexual tension there acknowledged or not. Here's the thing. You can lessen the chances of the friendship being destroyed if the sex is bad or things get weird with the boyfriend or someone catches feelings that the other doesn't share by having a conversation in advance of things getting bad about how you two will behave if things go south in the wrong ways, not in the ways you would like to go south on each other right now, but in a shitty way. And here's what you do. You just say to each other, look, I want to fuck you. You want to fuck me. You have a boyfriend. I'm a single unattached lesbian. There are ways in which we could get burned. I could catch feelings for you and then be hurt if you don't return them. You could catch feelings for me and then your boyfriend can get upset, which would then upset you, which would then upset me. So let's just promise that if things get tense or if things get weird, we are going to remember that we were friends first and we are going to do everything that we can to de-escalate whatever conflicts arise and restore that friendship and remember and recall that friendship as we process whatever conflicts or anxieties or insecurities, this thing that we want to do, eat each other's pussies, might unearth. And if you make that kind of commitment in advance, look, if things get shitty, if things get weird, we will power through it and remember that we're friends. You are likelier in the end to power through it and remember that you are friends and be able to return in the end to that friendship. It might not be right away. You might need to take a little break, a little time away from each other, just like exes who broke up. And all of this is just gaming out. If it goes badly, it might not go badly. It might go beautifully. You might have an awesome, awesome time. And if everyone out there looked at a potential hookup, a potential relationship, a potential date, a potential play partner and said to themselves, what am I jeopardizing here? What could go wrong and gamed out what could go wrong and then didn't do anything. No one would ever get laid ever because there's just so many different ways in which a sexual relationship, a romantic and sexual relationship, a hookup, whether it's for an evening or a weekend or a lifetime can go wrong. So don't let the fear of what ifs, don't let worst case scenario disorder thinking prevent you from having what could be a terrific experience. Just have a conversation in advance of it about the potential pitfalls, about the obvious uh, emotional pitfalls in, in this particular setup. She has a boyfriend. She's bisexual. She, she may not be available to you in ways you might like a sex partner to be available to you. Have that convo in advance and you're less likely to fall into those obvious traps. And if you do fall into them, you're more likely to be able to crawl back out of them. Hey, Dan, longtime listener, um, big fan of the show. I am a cis straight male calling from SoCal, but I'm actually calling in regards to a friend of mine. He is a, a gay male living in SoCal, also recently out of college, and he is working at a high school. He really loves his job, but recently he has fallen in love with one of the seniors at the high school, one that's going to about to graduate, and he keeps everything very professional and wants to keep everything moral. But him and the senior do text and he has contact with a lot of the kids at school because he's one of the college counselors. And he's trying to keep everything sort of 
under wraps. He thinks there is a mutual sort of affection, but he obviously is not going to act on it and does not want to act on it. But it is very painful for him to try to suppress his emotions all the time. He's been trying to keep things at bay and, you know, keep things out of his mind and also sort of, um, I would say, just, just suppress things. But he's having a lot of trouble. And I was just wondering, what kind of advice would you have for someone that is in this type of situation? Um, I've told him that maybe he can wait till after he graduates or some other things similar to that. But, you know, he's just in a lot of pain at the moment, basically working with someone that he's in love with and basically can't show affection for at all. Your friend sounds constitutionally unqualified to be in the position that he is in. He is a high school guidance counselor, a career counselor, a school counselor, and he is in love with one of his charges with one of these students that he has power over. And it doesn't sound, at least from the details that you shared, as if he's getting any messages from this kid, that this kid has any desire to be with him, no romantic feelings for him. He's just crushing out so hard on this kid and he's projecting these desires onto this kid and, and, you know, engaged in dickful thinking, hoping that there's something could be possible and he's in love. He's just got a really intense crush. And your friend is young. He's in college or just out of college. He's pretty close to this kid's age in actual fact. And, and that may be clouding his judgment. He may be seeing this kid more uh, as a peer than this kid actually is. But if your friend makes the mistake of hitting on this kid in the next six or seven months while the kid is still a high school senior or even after the kid graduates and he's out of high school and it comes out and it causes a scandal, that's a career ending scandal. I don't think as his friend, you should be gaming out how he gets into this kid's pants or worms his way into this kid's affections or what he should do after this kid graduates. I think as a friend, what you should be emphasizing is the very serious risk your friend is running here of derailing his career of having squandered the education he got to get the position that he's got and really fucking himself in the process. Your friend went to school. I, I, I assume he's got some sort of teaching certificate or teaching degree that qualified him to be in the position that he's in now, a position his actions around this student would seem to disqualify him for, particularly if he succumbs to this crush, if he acts on it. Yeah, he is risking blowing up his life personally and professionally because he's got a crush on an 18 year old kid. We get a lot of crushes over the course of our lives. Rarely does the crush turn into a relationship. Rarely does a relationship turn into a lasting relationship. He is risking a lot because he likes how this kid looks. Maybe he's risking a lot because he likes how this kid talks to him. He enjoys their interactions. That there's some interpersonal connection there. Maybe the kid is really charismatic but it ain't worth it. It ain't worth the risk. Your friend could not just wind up losing his job. He could wind up in real legal jeopardy. Other parents at this school, if he winds up dating this kid at 19, may accuse him or suspect him of having groomed this kid, this now adult, when he was a minor. And people are just so paranoid about that shit. And he may be viewed as having abused his position of having groomed this person when he did have power over him. So even if he waits until the kid graduates and he no longer has any institutional authority, no power over this kid, 
he could still be perceived as having abused his power. And maybe that's fair and maybe that's unfair, but it is still a likely career ender. That's what you as a friend should be emphasizing to him. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old woman married in a heterosexual monogamous relationship on the East Coast and found out that my husband has been cheating on me. For a little bit of background, we've been married a month, but I am eight months pregnant. And about nine months ago, he had four one-night stands. It was before I was pregnant, before we moved in together, before we got married. And then he had a threesome with a couple on my 30th birthday. Um, I was in Iceland. He had planned it out over several months with this couple, was talking to them. We're in a mostly monogamous relationship. That's what we both agreed to. Although I've been very GGG, we've gone to sex clubs and like had other people join us in our relationship. And although the line was that he was not to have sex with other women and definitely not without me, not without talking to me about it. Like I said, he did it on my birthday while I was on a birthday trip and then texted me like it was like nothing had happened. Um, He didn't confess. I had to find this out on my own. Needless to say, I've been devastated ever since. I'm questioning my marriage and this baby and our relationship, which was otherwise an amazing, uh, healthy relationship with great communication. It's made me feel sick to my stomach. It's um, harmed the pregnancy because I've been unable to eat or sleep or drink. And I just don't know where to go from here. I don't know. Do I stay with someone that's cheated on me five times despite me being open and kinky? And, or do I leave? Like, I feel everyone is telling me I'm stupid if I stay. The first thing I want to tell you is to please eat, drink, and try to sleep. You need to take care of yourself. You need to take care of your fetus, the fetus that you carry. You also need to take care of yourself. You're headed toward childbirth, which is incredibly physically and emotionally taxing. And you need to take care of yourself, eat, drink, sleep. And you need to take care of this kid that you're about to have by eating and drinking and trying to sleep too. All right, on to your cheating piece of shit husband, your CPOS husband, your needlessly CPOSing husband. You guys didn't have a monogamous relationship. You had a mostly monogamous relationship and he didn't need to cheat on you to have some sexual adventure, to have some outside sexual contact. He could have talked to you about these things, processed these things. And if he had included you in these adventures, they wouldn't have been violations. They wouldn't have you sitting at home, unable to eat, drink or sleep a month before you're supposed to give birth to the child you created with this person. But you did none of those things. So what do you do? Everyone's telling you to leave. I'm inclined to tell you to leave. If you're a listener and presumably you are, you didn't call me at random and leave that message on some random guy's phone number. You've heard me talk about the hand job on the business trip at 20 years versus the fucking your sister on your wedding night. That, you know, if somebody been together 10, 15, 20 years, it's been a good and loving relationship. And that person hooked up 
on a business trip, maybe got a hand job from a masseuse, that that's something that I think a loving monogamous couple should be able to forgive and get past. Fucking your sister on your wedding night? Probably not something that you can forgive and get past. That is such a scalding violation. It is such a betrayal of everything your relationship was purportedly about, especially at that stage, your fucking wedding night. Yeah, I understand. You know, I think if somebody cheats on you once and they never do it again and they regret it and you have a monogamous commitment, that that one incident shouldn't blow the relationship up. They should be able to forgive and get past it. If the incident is closer to the handjob from the masseuse end of the spectrum and far from the fucking your sister on your wedding night end of the spectrum and everything that your husband did early in your relationship and on your birthday really falls pretty close to the fucking your sister on your wedding night end of the spectrum and will be hard to forgive. What you have to balance here is whether it's in your own self-interest to forgive him. You need to ask yourself not what you should do, not what he should suffer, but what you want. Do you want to be with him? Do you want to parent with him? Do you want to parent under the same roof with him? Obviously, he doesn't like rules. Obviously, having an agreement with you that allows for outside sexual contact when you're there together or when you're fully informed and you have buy-in and you give him permission, that some part of his erotic imagination, that's not exciting enough. Some part of his erotic imagination requires the violation, the cheating, the lying, and the deceit. Being with him means signing up for those things. There will be more incidents like these over the course of your marriage. How do you feel about that? Is that something, if it was okay, if it was understood, if you allowed for him sometimes dinking off secretly and having a liaison and then coming back and maybe telling you about it a few months later or never telling you about it at all? Could that be fun and exciting? Just like the sexual adventures that you two had together were fun and exciting. If yes, if you could see yourself getting there, maybe you could stay with him. If no, then you need to end this marriage because he is going to keep at this and it is going to, if it, this sort of thing, if these kinds of betrayals will always be experienced as betrayals and as violations and as a crisis in your marriage, then you need to leave him because it is going to keep happening. I sometimes feel like Maya Angelou is my co-pilot on the show because I cite her so often when someone shows you who they are the first time, believe them. He's shown you who he is. Now you know him for exactly who he is sexually. He can't be faithful. He can't even be faithful in the context of a mostly monogamous relationship where he can get with other people with his partner's consent. If you can live with that, maybe you can live with him. If you can't live with that, you can't live with him. Hi, Dan. My partner and I have had an open relationship since day one. Um, since then, we've moved in together. Our children all get along. and We live in a really happy, healthy household with a really beautiful relationship. Um, he's in his 40s and I'm in my 20s, and we're both openly bisexual. We mutually agreed that open, not poly, is a way for us, and we couldn't imagine it any other way. But then we got HIV. As you can imagine, it was devastating, not only for obvious reasons, but more so because we were so used to the freedom that we had before playing um, in group or uh, apart. 
It's been a rough few months, but we have been talking about getting back in the lifestyle, but a lot of people don't understand the U equals U concept, undetectable means untransmittable. We're happy with the normal monogamy thing, but we still want to explore with others, just like we did before, but the rejection of those who don't understand is, for lack of a better word, kind of lame. I just wanted to hear your input, um, or if you have any advice for ways that we can talk to people about it um, openly without scaring them off. We're very open about it. Again, uh, we don't hide it from anyone. We make sure that that's understood. Um, but it seems like everyone kind of, they say and they understand, but they kind of don't ever text back. I was hoping you could shed some light on this and also put out the word out there that just because we have HIV doesn't mean that we're scarred or uh, damaged goods. People get upset at me when I give this piece of advice, this one word piece of advice that is applicable in so many different contexts for so many different callers with so many different questions. Move. You could move. You could move your family. It might be difficult. You have kids. You put down roots. You live in Texas. It might be difficult to pull up stakes. But if you lived in a community that had a better understanding of HIV, if you lived and swung in a place like San Francisco or Portland or Seattle or Los Angeles or Chicago or New York, you might encounter less ignorance. Undetectable is uninfectious. Somebody who knows themselves to be HIV positive and is in treatment and is taking their meds and is compliant and has gone to the doctor and has undetectable viral load, they are not capable of infecting someone with HIV. If you and your partner are, as most swingers do, most open people do, using condoms with other partners to protect yourselves and them from other sexually transmitted infections, your chances of giving them HIV go from non-existent to double super extra backflip non-existent. You are just not a risk. Your partners are at greater risk from people who believe themselves to be negative who may not be negative when it comes to HIV. And a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of gay people don't understand that. You know, I just said move to a place where there's more understanding about HIV. A lot of those places where people have a, a better understanding about HIV and about undetectable equals uninfectious have more gay people. In them. But I still hear from gay people who are HIV positive and have undetectable viral loads and therefore are uninfectious, cannot transmit the virus, that they sometimes get shot down or frequently get shot down when they're open about their HIV status with potential hookups. So if gay guys are hearing that from other gay guys, ignorant gay guys in a place like San Francisco or Chicago or New York, your odds of hearing that from straighter by folks living in Texas are infinitely higher which brings me back to move, but move isn't always practical. So I would encourage you to do what you encourage me to do, to educate people, to keep talking, to keep telling people the truth about yourselves, that you guys are pause, and the truth about undetectable. If someone is undetectable, they are not going to infect you with HIV. If you use a condom, they're not going to infect you with gonorrhea or syphilis either but certainly not going to infect you with HIV, even if you don't use a condom. I do think people should use condoms with rando partners, even if HIV isn't a consideration, but everyone gets to make up their own minds. Do what you encourage me to do. Educate people. And this is one of those sorting hat moments where you tell someone something about you, one thing about you, and their reaction tells you everything you need to know about them. 
you'd probably don't want to be with people who are so crippled by HIV anxiety and fear and ignorance that they couldn't relax, even if they grokked, even if they got it through their head that you guys can't infect them if they're just a nervous wreck because there's an HIV positive person in the room with an undetectable viral load and they can't relax and enjoy the sex or they're a a, a tense wreck about it afterwards. You're not going to enjoy those encounters. So those people who ghost on you, who stop responding to your texts, who disappear, probably not people you wanted to go to bed with anyway. So you're going to have to cast a wider net. Maybe you should look for partners in other places. You guys can go see couples in other cities if your parents or your partner's parents can come and look after the kids while you guys move to San Francisco just for 36 hours, just for a weekend. You can have those outside sexual encounters. You can have those sexual adventures together. Still, if you can swing it, if you can afford it to move to San Francisco or Seattle or Portland, Chicago or New York for a weekend. I wouldn't encourage you to lie to people. There are risks when it comes to lying to people about HIV. Many states have laws that criminalize not telling someone you're HIV positive before you have sex with them, even if you're undetectable, even if you use a condom on top of being undetectable. And you don't want to run that risk. You don't want someone that you slept with to find out after the fact that you're positive and run to the police and blow your lives up in that way. So I encourage you to keep being honest. And hopefully in time, because I'm educating people, because you're educating people, you'll encounter more educated couples, not just in San Francisco, not just in Portland and Seattle and Chicago, New York, but in Texas too. Good luck and good on you guys for being honest and being open and being responsible. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at-risk at youth. I am a 26-year-old transgendered woman in Los Angeles, California, living a beautiful little life. I am an escort and I have this new sugar daddy who I've never really had a sugar daddy before. I've only ever had clients. And the thing is I have HIV and I don't tell my clients that I have HIV because as you and I both know, HIV is manageable and I always use condoms and everything's safe. And I'm just, it's definitely unethical, as, as, as many would say, but I just want to begin this conversation, I guess. I guess I don't hear anyone talk about this, that some of us who do this kind of work have HIV and don't disclose it to our clients because their life would, will change in no way. You know, like I'm never going to give it to someone. No one's ever going to contract it from me because I take my medication and we use condoms and all of the things, all of the safeguards are in place, right? <clears throat> but so my sugar daddy wants to take me on a trip and he doesn't know that I have HIV because I'm not fucking going to tell him that because I don't want to fuck up my income. That's, 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 that's the real bad part. We can't fuck up my income. But so I just want to like start this conversation or ask like how evil am I or am I the future? (laughs) You're not evil. I certainly don't think you're evil. You're taking your meds. You're using condoms with your clients. You are putting them at zero risk of contracting HIV. You have an undetectable viral load. You are not infectious. You are using condoms on top of that. You are double backflip, not infectious when it comes to HIV. And you're protecting your clients from other sexually transmitted infections as well. Good on you. Is what you're doing ethical? Are you the future? Well, Perhaps you are the future. Perhaps a a time is coming when 
everyone understands that an undetectable viral load, if somebody is on their meds, uh, means that that person can't infect you with HIV. And if they're using a condom on top of that, they double backflip, can't infect you with HIV. So they aren't under any obligation to disclose their HIV status to you. That's an entirely private matter because it impacts you not at all. That might be the future, but right now we live in the present. And as I said to the previous caller, a lot of states criminalize the failure to disclose your HIV status. There are men, mostly men, probably some trans women also, in prison in this country for the failure to disclose their HIV status to a partner. And there have been prosecutions of people who fail to disclose their HIV status even though they used a condom. Prosecutions of men who were the passive partner in anal intercourse, they were the penetrated one in a situation where a condom was used and they were prosecuted because of the fear and the shame and the stigma and the ignorance. So are you the future? Is there a time coming when everyone has access to health care, when everyone who has HIV is in treatment, when HIV is on its way out, on its last legs, because people who have HIV are uh, have access to the meds or taking their meds, have primary care physicians who look after them, and people who don't have HIV have access to PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, Truveda. So they aren't at risk of contracting HIV if they wind up in bed with somebody who doesn't know they have HIV and therefore isn't on their meds and therefore isn't undetectable. Is that the future? Perhaps it is. Perhaps that day is coming. That day has not yet arrived. So I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned for the risk that you are running, for the danger that you're placing yourself in. Legally, if somebody that you see who's a regular client finds out you're positive and goes to the police. You're a trans woman working as an escort. I don't have to tell you that you're already at risk for, for violence at, at the hands of angry clients potentially, but also state violence as a trans woman, and as a positive person and as an escort, you're a, under triple threats there. So the glib answer is to tell you just to disclose, but if disclosing means impoverishment, you have a huge incentive not to disclose. And that incentive not to disclose, coupled with the fact that you're undetectable and using condoms and therefore putting no one at risk of contracting HIV, I can certainly understand why adding those things up, you would conclude not only is it in your best interest financially not to disclose, but you're under no moral obligation to disclose. But the sad reality is you're under a legal obligation, depending on where you live, to disclose. As for this trip with your sugar daddy, I assume the risk here is that if you travel with him, he is going to see you take your meds or spot your meds. The temptation may be to go off your meds on a trip. Please do not do that because going off your meds can cause, as I'm sure you're aware, your viral load to spike and then you become potentially not, not infectious anymore. So I would... If you wish to continue as you are, not go on that trip. If the risk of exposure here is tied to that trip, the intimacy of that trip, being in the same hotel room, all of your toiletries being laid out or the bottle of pills being in your bag somewhere or him seeing the pill and then Googling it, don't go on the trip if you don't want to have to disclose or you don't want to get found out, don't go on the trip. Hey, Dan. So I'm 25 years old, and I recently had a somewhat nasty situation with my now ex-boyfriend that caused my dad to say to me, and my dad is 70 approximately, he says, dump the motherfucker already. And I thought, this is just a totally normal phrase that people say, because I hear him say it all the time, and I hear you say it all the time. 
And then he says, do you know where that phrase comes from? And I was like, I thought that was just a normal phrase. And he says, I got it from this guy, Dan Savage, who wrote this relationship column I used to read all the time. And I like think he gives great advice. And I, who had found the podcast without any help from my dad, just had my mind completely blown. So I wanted to call and thank you for giving kick-ass relationship advice to two generations of my family and hopefully making us all much better partners. That is a sweet story that makes me feel so old. I have been writing Savage Love for almost 30 years. I get letters now from people whose parents were taking my advice before they were born. That freaks me out. The numbers of conceptions I may have played even some small role in particularly freaks me out. But I want to give a shout out to your dad. You can let him know I still write that column, Savage Love. You can find it online, find it at thestranger.com and other weekly newspapers all over the country and the world. And if you give us a call back and give me your dad's name and an address, I will send him a signed book to thank him for reading the column back in the day. And I'll send you one, too, to thank you for listening to the Lovecast here in this day. Hey, Dan, longtime listener, 33-year-old, by guy, central United States-ish. Been sleeping with a guy randomly here and there, super closet case. And uh, he recently just texted me, I'm dating someone now, but I want you to know the last time we had sex, my stomach started hurting and it hasn't stopped. I have to get a colonoscopy now because of the pain. Don't know what that means. I said, wow, sorry to hear that. I hope everything is okay. We were pretty deep in that ass. Will you keep me posted? Haven't heard back. He deletes his number from time to time, can't get a hold of him, disappears, don't really know how to handle that any further. But uh, we've been together numerous times. Every time afterwards, he deletes his number, deletes his phone, deletes his kick, can't get a hold of him. Just uh, curious how I should proceed. I think you proceed with the assumption that this was a coincidence and that this guy, by evidence of his shame-driven behaviors, that he contacts you when he's horny for the dude on dude sex and then disappears and deletes numbers and blocks things and deletes his kick account in between those moments when he really has to have the deck that he's attached meaning to what was probably a coincidence. You guys had butt sex. You've had butt sex before he came down with some gut issue after you two had butt sex after you were really deep in that ass. And those two phenomena were actually unrelated. You've had plenty of butt sex with him before. He's probably had butt sex with other guys. And his gut issue number came up shortly after he had butt sex. That's not proof the butt sex was the cause of the gut issue. And I think you just have to shrug this off. This person that you like to have sex with, who's clearly, it seems, having sex with you from a place of shame and desperation and need, has disappeared on you again. And perhaps blames you because you were deep in his guts. You were way up there. You were giving him a deep dicking, which is what he wanted. And then he came down with something. And like a lot of people who struggle with internalized homophobia and sex shame and kink shame, he thought, oh my God, I'm finally being punished for the sex that I shouldn't be having in the first place. Ah, God was watching me that day. And now I have to go get a colonoscopy. I've had a lot of butt sex in my time. I know a lot of people who have and have had a lot of butt sex. No one that I know personally has ever come to me and the people who are 
my friends. We talk about our sex lives. We talk about our sex problems together a lot. No one has ever come to me and said, oh my God, I got such a deep dicking that I needed a colonoscopy the next day or a week later. Oh, God damn it, colonoscopy has never come up. Don't stress out about this. You don't have to feel guilty. He's taking care of that for the both of you. Sounds like he's taking care of that for all of us who are out there having the butt sex. Hi, Dan. I am a 22-year-old pansexual female, and I have recently switched careers and have started making professional porn for a living, something I've always wanted to do. Everyone close to me knew this except for my parents. I've had to lie to my parents many times about where I was and what I was doing since changing jobs. I wanted to be honest about my life with them, so I decided to tell them before they found out elsewhere. I told them I'm doing it safely with an agent, only with all known companies, and I'm happy and healthy. I'm happier than I have been for a long time. They are devout Mormons and did not take this well, as I expected. My mom cried and left the building as kept to herself since. My dad said he was disappointed and angry, but still loves me. I feel guilty for hurting my mom as I also have other siblings causing emotional turmoil for her. I feel like I'm adding to her pain, but I'm not the one who can comfort her right now. I know she ethically disagrees with sex work, while I've always supported it, which makes this harder. I'm wondering if you've heard from other sex workers about how they deal with turbulent relationships with their family around their choice of work. Tossing this one out there to sex workers who are listeners, if you have any advice about how you had that conversation with your parents about doing sex work, about doing pornography, uh, particularly how you may have handled the aftermath if your parents reacted negatively, please give us a call. We'll play some of your responses on a future show. And to anyone out there who might be thinking that what the caller did violates my run your parents on a need to know basis, I disagree. If the caller were just doing sex work, that might be true. But the caller is doing pornography that is being published. And I do think that if you are doing porn and it's available on the internet as porn is, that there's a good chance someone in your life will see that and some asshole in your life may send that to your parents and you might want to get in front of that. Better they should hear from you than hear from Pornhub that you are making pornography. I have some really good friends who make porn, our commercial porn stars, who've had to tell their parents and it was rocky at first but in the case of my closest friend who had to have that difficult conversation with his rural, conservative, religious parents, they came around in time, they've embraced his choice to make pornography. They're not fans, they're not watching, but they know he does it and they have a relationship now and it's loving and respectful. And one of the things that they feared was the porn was the first step down a road that led to drug addiction and homelessness and death. And it just took time for my friend to prove to his parents that he was doing this and it was a free choice and that it wasn't a choice that came bundled with a bunch of other choices that were self-destructive. He wasn't someone for whom the porn was a sign that he was spiraling out of control. He was someone who made a very conscious decision to do porn because he enjoys sex, he enjoys performing, he enjoys performing sex, and he's able to do it safely and conscientiously without blowing his life up. So it may take caller, it may take time for your parents to come around. You say your other siblings are putting your mother in a painful place right now, that they're having problems. Your mother probably regards porn as evidence that you have a problem and the porn is a symptom and the disease is going to result in all sorts of other symptoms until your life is a complete and total shit show or you're dead. And it'll take some time for you to demonstrate to your parents that that isn't so. Just like my friend in time was able to demonstrate to his parents that none of that was so for him either. And now they have a good relationship. I hope you have a good relationship in future with your parents too. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me by phone for this What You Got, Lucy Platt, Professor of Public Health Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Hey, Professor Platt, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. May I call you Lucy? Of course. Uh, so Lucy, um, what do you got? What's your new study? Well, we've just published a review um, in December that looked at the impacts of criminalization on sex workers, health, safety, and access to services. Okay, so before you even go on there, the reason people who support criminalizing uh, sex work, and it's criminalized in most places, and a lot of people support efforts to make it even more criminalize uh, is to protect sex workers from the dangers of sex work. And what you looked at was how dangerous criminalization actually makes it. That's right. Yes. I mean, I think the reason people support criminalization is, yes, as you say, to protect sex workers and also to perhaps reduce the demand for sex work mm -hmm. and reduce the number of sex workers as well. Right. And the idea is if we can end sex work by making it more illegal, then that's the ultimate protection for sex workers. That that would be their argument. Exactly. Yes. Yes. But what, what did you find when you looked at how criminalization actually impacts the health and safety of people doing sex work? Well, we found that it had the opposite effect. We found that sex workers who'd experienced some kind of repressive, repressive policing um, practice, including arrest or confiscation of condoms or needles or syringes, or being moved on by the police um, to work in another place, were three times more likely to experience instances of, of violence by any party, clients or partners or others, twice as likely to have HIV or an STI infection, and one and a half times more likely to have sex without a condom. Um, compared to those who'd not experienced repressive policing. So, so the people you're comparing, uh, the sex workers who experienced repressive policing to those who hadn't, were That's they right. people working in the same environments and they just had been lucky enough not to experience repressive policing? Or are you comparing people doing sex work in places where it is criminalized to people doing sex work in places where it's not? No, this was comparing people who had experienced arrest or some kind of enforcement compared to those who hadn't, but in the same context. Mm -hmm. But this, these included studies, we included studies from over 33 countries, from a range of high income, low income, different economic set, um, settings, and a range of um, policy contexts context as well. So from countries where both sex workers are criminalized and clients are criminalized, where just... Um, certain aspects of sex workers criminalized, such as soliciting or working together in a brothel, mm -hmm. um, but also from countries where um, clients are just criminalized alone and sex workers are not. Um, Which is called the Nordic model that a lot of people who want to be the moderates, you know, want to come down in between criminalization and decriminalization will support the Nordic model, which decriminalizes what the sex workers are doing theoretically, but criminalizes the buying sex, not selling it, buying it. But the actual impact, when you look at this research, uh, other people have written about this, talked about this. New York Times did a huge piece about it. Emily Bazelon did that. The Nordic model doesn't make it any better for sex workers. It's just as bad as full criminalization. Well, yeah, that's right. Our review showed that how um, 
criminalization of, of clients in those settings, I mean, that just serves to reproduce the same vulnerabilities that sex workers experience where, where, they're, where they're criminalized themselves. So you have the same issues. So you, we looked at sort of the mechanisms through which criminalization and enforcement practices might work to increase vulnerability, risk of violence and poor poorer sexual health outcomes. And we showed that it showed we found that a fear of arrest or actual arrest of sex workers themselves or their clients met that meant that sex workers had to rush client screening and negotiations or conduct them in secluded places. So this leads to greater vulnerability to violence and theft. Okay, so if we had only listened to sex workers and believed what sex workers were telling us, not that I'm not happy that your that your research is out there and this study has been published, but I you know I know people who are sex workers, I have friends who have sex workers. I've never talked to a sex worker who said, "Oh yeah, when I got arrested, that made my things much better for me." After I got arrested, like everything yeah. improved. I know. I mean, this for our review, we just included peer reviewed papers that have been published in um, public health and social science journals. I mean, they were, all the data was drawn from interviews with sex workers or studies of sex workers themselves. But we found no- nothing new that um, community researchers and, and groups have been saying for years, yes, that criminalization is harmful. Okay, so what's the takeaway? I mean, I think that's the takeaway. Usually I ask people in a What You Got segment, what's the takeaway here? What's, what should people uh, keep in mind after hearing about your study? The takeaway is criminalization doesn't make it better. Yeah, that, I think that's the that's the bottom line. I mean, I think p- opponents of decriminalizing sex work often voice concerns that this model normalizes violence and gender inequalities. But I think our review clearly shows it's how criminalization, including of clients, it's that's that's the model that fuels um, violence, normalizes violence, and uh, fuels these harms. It restricts sex workers' access to justice and reinforces stigmatization and marginalization of this already marginalized group. And let's let's translate what restricts sex workers' access to justice means in practical terms. You know, a sex worker who's been assaulted by a client can't go to the police. Well, that's 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 exactly right. Yes. Um, so we found that you know when police did report incidences of violence uh, against them to the police, police often failed to act act on this and frequently blamed them for for for, for what was happening to them or criminalised them further. Um, so this creates an environment of impunity where violence and theft and you know, other and and other harms can continue, and, and right because, because, because people may predators may feel they have impunity. Like I, I'm with somebody who's a sex worker, they can't report me to the police because what they're doing is illegal. So I can beat them, I can rob them, I can cheat them, I can assault them without fear of consequence myself. And that doesn't make sex workers safer. That criminalization does not make sex workers safer. It makes sex workers more vulnerable. That's exactly right. Yes. Our review shows how um, police practices um, target specific uh, sex workers, specific groups or populations, um, including trans women, people of color, migrants, people who use drugs and or people who work outdoors. So that their practices reinforce existing inequalities and marginalization within sex worker populations, creating disparities within the communities. So existing prejudices in the society, in, in a culture, can then be 
further weaponized by the police because there are certain kinds of sex workers, certain types of people doing sex work who are likelier to bear the full brunt of, of law enforcement. Whereas other people who may not be people of color, may not be trans, may not be using drugs, may not be immigrants are less likely to be chucked into the criminal justice system as a result of doing sex work. That's exactly right. Yes. Um, this shows how sort of the policing practices threaten sex workers' broader rights and, and, and it's very much connected to broader struggles for racial, gender and social equality. So if you were talking to someone who opposes criminalization because they think women who do sex work, and they rarely talk about men who do sex work when they talk about criminalization, but if you could just speak to someone who opposes decriminalization because they want to protect sex workers. If you could shake them by the shoulders and you have like 10 seconds, what would you shout in their faces? None of the evidence shows how criminalization reduces the need for, for people to, to do sex work. Um, it only serves to increase the harms uh, for people working in sex work um, already. I mean, it's key that criminalization and repressive police enforcement practices are harmful and and the and 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 laws need to be reformed. I mean, I think a key point is that decriminalisation alone is not enough. Um, we need to work to reduce gender inequalities, economic inequalities, racial inequalities within society as a whole and tackle stigma towards sex, sex workers. I, I agree with you 10,000%. Basically, we're in violent agreement, you and I here. But I, I talk about this a lot. You know, often when you talk to people who oppose decriminalization, they'll, they'll begin to, to speak of people who do sex work because they're, they, they may not be coerced by a pimp, but economically they may feel coerced. They have no other options. They have no other choice. They're very poor. They're very desperate and they do sex work. And the answer is then we need to address economic inequality, that there are people who do sex work of their own free will and it's completely consensual. And yes, there are people who end up doing sex work because they're being ground down economically. They feel they have no other options. But then – they end up doing sex work because they're under economic duress and then they're prosecuted. Then they're arrested. Doesn't make it better. Whatever brought them to sex work. And if you want fewer people brought to sex work because of because of their under economic duress, then a stronger social safety net, then uh, guaranteed basic income, then decent housing, decent schools, decent access to uh, health care. That's how you prevent people from doing sex work because they're under economic duress, not increasing the penalties for having been caught doing sex work. I think that's ex that's exactly right. I mean, I think a key point is that any legal reform is likely to take a, a long time. Um, and in the short term, what we need is um, increased support for specialist and sex worker-led projects and, and initiatives and sustained funding for these services. So for th listeners out there who'd like to read the study itself, where can they find it online? So it's published in PLOS Medicine, which is an open access journal, um, and it was published in December. And so you can Google it online and um, if you type in Platt, sex work, criminalization. And the title of the paper is Associations Between Sex Work Laws and Sex Workers' Health, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Quantitative and Qualitative Studies. Yes. We also have a policy brief which highlights the key points from the review if you don't fancy wading through all the detail. And that can be found on our project website called the East London Project. Lucy Platt, Professor of Public Health Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone for What You Got. We really appreciate it. No problem. A pleasure. Hi, Dan. I am a 29-year-old female um, from the Mountain West calling um, about a question I have about trust. Um, I've been 
dating my current boyfriend for about nine or ten months since then. I mean, we've had a great relationship, great sex, everything's GGG. However, he's a bartender, which my first experience dating a bartender, um, very, very flirty, you know, people while he's at work because, you know, gets some better tips and he's constantly has notes that he gets from girls, giving him his phone number that he, you know, keeps for some reason. There's been a couple times where my curiosity has gotten the best out of me and I've snooped and found some things that were concerning where he was meeting up an ex for um, lunch um, and there was just some kind of weird texting going on between them. And then another instance where I found out he had uh, texted an escort, although he said he never followed through with actually meeting up with them. My question is, how do I get over this trust issue? I haven't had any issues with him, you know, me finding out he's sleeping with anybody or going out with anybody from work that he's flirted with. All of my trust issues have come from, you know, this escort thing that was totally random. And then this um, ex-girlfriend, um, I guess I just, I don't know how to get over it. I don't know what I can do to move on and make our relationship better. I don't want to keep being the crazy girlfriend who gets jealous every time I think he's flirting or texting somebody else. Um, any advice you have would be great on just how to cope with overcoming that mental barrier um, when your trust has been sort of messed with. Anyways, thank you so much. I'm going to get in trouble for this. The bartender community is going to come for me. I am going to get dragged. It has been my experience, my subjective personal experience and the experience, the subjective personal experience of my friends that yeah, dating a bartender means kind of sort of signing up for getting cheated on. And if not getting cheated on, having your insecurities, if you're very much invested in monogamy and exclusivity, constantly sandpapered because bartenders give us drinks, because bartenders give us a big smile, because bartenders benefit financially from making us feel like we're special and desirable and attractive because then we will tip them. And sometimes when we tip them, we give them our phone numbers or notes. We make offers and bartenders succumb at least to accepting the phone numbers, maybe to having that flirty conversation. Maybe they have the flirty conversation initially because there's a bigger tip in it, but to have that flirty conversation with someone you could actually see yourself fucking if you were not attached, if you were on a committed relationship, that's way more fun than having a flirty conversation with someone you would never want to fuck. So they're constantly tempted and some seem, many, most, all seem prone to succumbing to that temptation at some point. So, so how do you get over this? Well, you may not constitutionally be cut out for dating a bartender. If you don't enjoy on some level other people wanting to fuck your partner, even if they don't, even if he would never, if you can't take pleasure in your partner being this object of desire and you having him and he's all for you, but everybody wants to fuck him, then maybe you shouldn't be dating a bartender. Maybe you should be dating, I don't know, the person who takes your money on the Jersey Turnpike. I don't know. You should be dating somebody else, someone who people you know, don't want to see, don't particularly enjoy interacting with. And they don't, well, bartenders don't have to flirt, but they have this incentive to flirt. But 
you being with someone who has this incentive to flirt when your partner flirting with other people sandpapers your nerves in this way may not be the best strategy for peace in your relationship or for your own sense of contentment. I'm not telling you you have to break up with him. I'm not telling you never to date a bartender. I'm certainly not telling everybody out there listening to me never to date bartenders. I have dated bartenders. Some of the best sex I've ever had in my life was with bartenders. Every bartender's ever cheated on me, however. That said, if you can pivot to this is exciting, if you can pivot to everybody wants him, I get him, and find some erotic tension and juice there. If you can eroticize your fear, everybody wants to fuck my boyfriend. Right now, that's a fear. A lot of us are kinks. Our desires, our eroticized fears. If you can make boner lemonade out of those lemons, it might work for you. But if you're going to be a wreck every time you find a phone number in his wallet, if it's going to prompt you to snoop and then find out things that you wouldn't have found out otherwise, that wouldn't have bothered you otherwise because you believe him when he says he's not sleeping with anyone else and no desire to sleep with anybody else, but you're going to constantly be crawling onto that rack and torturing yourself with his opportunities, because he does have opportunities, more opportunities than somebody who works in a cubicle in an office every day, then he might not be the right partner for you. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight 30-year-old male. I've been married for four years with my wife for a total of eight. We are monogamous and for the most part, very happy in our life together. My wife and I don't have matching libidos. Mine is high. Hers is much lower. After living together for a couple of years, our pretty frequent sex life slowly tapered to about twice a month, and they were pretty low effort by both of us. About a year and a half ago, I finally had to speak with her about it. I hadn't brought the issue to her right away because she was dealing with a lot at work and with chronic back pain. Back pain is something she has had for quite a long time, but in the last year and a half, it had gotten much worse. She saw specialists, cortisone injections, physical therapy, etc., and was basically limited to lying on her back with a heating pad and ice pack. I explained I understood fully with her back that it wasn't something we could physically work on at the time. But as she healed her back, I figured we could talk about everything and figure it out. After a lot of crying and discussion, after months of effort from both of us, we have returned and stayed at a place where we were both happy with the frequency of our sex life. One spark to all of this has been her eventually realizing a kink she has had and sharing it with me. My otherwise vanilla wife's only kink. She is really turned on by the idea of watching me sleep with other women. She even enjoys some aspects of the humiliation. After much reading and research, she seems to fit pretty perfectly into the cut queen kink. Now, as I stated, she is otherwise vanilla, and I get that that's very non-vanilla, but she becomes more turned on than I have ever seen her when we discuss it. Dirty talk, watch cut queen porn, or read personal blogs and stories. It sparks her libido almost instantly, and as I said, we have had sex almost as much as when we first started dating. She has mentioned many times about how right now it's just fantasy and maybe something she never wants to realize, and I fully understand that. Here's the problem. As I've gotten older and as we've talked more and more about this kink and what I desire to do to these women, I've realized more and more that there are things that we don't do or can't do due to chronic pain that I really enjoy and miss. For instance, toys, sexy outfits, rough sex, choking, hair pulling, deep penetration, etc. All things I didn't realize I really kind of needed in my sex life. These are things that my wife and I have talked about me wanting and missing, but she isn't either into them or cannot do them them due to chronic pain or mismatch in vaginal size to penis size. I'm average, but she experiences sharp pain when her cervix is hit, so I have to make sure that I don't go all the way in in most positions. Also, though the frequency of our sex life has risen, we are limited to what seems like her on top until she comes, me on top until I come. Cowgirl and missionary, 95% of our sex life is one or both of those positions in foreplay. 
With chronic pain, I essentially have uh, been handling most household duties, and sometimes I feel overwhelmed by it all, since there is this growing itch that doesn't seem to be being scratched. I feel terrible that my wife has had chronic pain, and I just want to kind of open the relationship to get these needs met. Am I being a selfish dick? It would seem that there is some middle ground here somewhere. Dan, can you help me find it? What conversation should I have with my wife? So the obvious answer is you should keep doing what you've been doing, which is talking about this, right? Right. But not just dirty talking about it. And you're having, it sounds like great, dirty conversations. And this is a huge turn on to your wife. Uh, this cut queen idea, this fantasy scenario where you have sex with another woman in front of her or not in front of her. What's her ideal scenario? Uh, I think the ideal scenario is a combination of the two. I think it's a combination of, you know, me by myself with her and then also with my wife watching or my wife even joining in. Okay. So, you know, some people into cuckolding, if you listen to say the keys and anklets podcast, which is a terrific podcast dedicated to the cuckolding and hot wife lifestyle. um, What you often hear is that people talk about this for years and years and years before they ever attempt it. And, you know, cuckolding, as the saying goes, is not a violation of trust. It's an exploration of trust. And it right. can take people a long time to get to a place, even with someone that they love and they, they trust and they committed to, that where they can get to a place where the trust around this idea, uh, cuckolding, particularly with the humiliation aspect stirred in, is there and is strong enough for the relationship to bear up under the strain, really, of how intense – a, a kink and a fetish like this is emotionally. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And the thing I think that the particular thing you need to address with your wife and could be very, um, what's well, not dangerous is the word, a, a minefield for her emotionally in the moment is because of her chronic pain, uh, because of her back issues, part of what you're interested in doing with other women are those things that you cannot do with her because of her physical limitations. Right. Yeah. Has this come up in conversation with the wife around not wanting to realize this fantasy? Um, no, not specifically. Um, you know, it's something that she obviously knows. And, and when we do dirty talk, you know, I talk about being, you know, extra rough and how I can't do that with her and, and this and that, which is part of the, the humiliation aspect, I think, that she kind of enjoys. Um, right. But, you know, that you know, these kinks and things that I, that I can't really express or take part in um, due to her physical limitations, which I'm totally fine with. You know, I've right. spent the last couple of years taking care of her. and Physical limitations and inadequacies so. are often a part of the cuckolding kink. Uh, you know, when you see it from the guy's side, it's because it's usually guys who are cuckolds and they want their wives to sleep with other men. A lot of the humiliation is tied to their penises not being big enough, to their feelings of inadequacy. And sometimes their penises are average or even large, and they still have these feelings of inadequacy. And it can be really explosive that first time their wife in front of them is with someone larger, someone who can physically do things for the wife that they can't fill her up in a way that he can't. And as much as a turn on that that might be in the conversations about it, in the run up to actually doing it, doing it that first time can be really scary. And it can unleash all sorts of unexpected feelings like a dam can break. And I think that before you can get there, you need to have a really direct and honest conversation with your wife about what that will mean in the moment. What will it mean for her to see you be able to express yourself sexually with someone else in a way you can't express yourself with her, not because of any fault of her own, not because of she won't, but because she can't. Okay. That makes sense. Don't dance around that issue. You need to address it directly. 
And it may be that, you know, the first few times if she agrees to realize this as opposed to just fantasizing about it, that it's, you know, training wheels and bumpers the first few times, that it's not full intercourse, that it's just rolling around and messing around, that there's somebody else in the room with you two that you interact with and you tease her with, but then the main event is her, you know, cowgirl on you and missionary with you, that that you revert to, you know, your comforting and, and really partner-focused sex, even with that other person there as, you know, a tantalizing, teasing appetizer. But that first time, if you, you know, if you go there, if you can go there, those first times you demonstrate to the wife that she is still at the center of this. And it's not that you're looking to discard her. And as soon as you can get someone else in a room with you two, all of your focus and attention and desire is going to shift to this other person. Because that's really, you know, the paradox and twist of cuckolding. It's about the couple. Even if one of them is right. turning all their attentions to someone else temporarily, it's to turn on the other half. And, sure. and that's, I definitely don't want her to feel, you know, like she's missing out or, or jealousy she, or anything like that. Or she's inadequate because she isn't inadequate. Right. Absolutely There's not. Certain things that she can't do that you would enjoy. And there's a way for you to have those things and to have them in a context where she gets a lot out of it too. She gets something out of it too. What's in it for her? This huge turn on, but it's going to take time. And, and I really think what you need to get in your head is that this is a conversation that you're not going to have over you know, one evening. And then next weekend, you're going to have a cut queen scene. This is a conversation that you're going to have for months and months and months or years and years and years and enjoy and let it be a turn on. And, and there's just, you know, if you listen to cuckold stories, if you listen to keys and anklets or, you know, the stuff that I'm sure you're reading online about cuckolding, uh, most of which is about the man being the cuckold, not the woman being the cuck queen, uh, that there's a long time between the idea being floated and the fantasy being realized. And you need to settle in for that long time. That's another way you demonstrate to your wife that she's the most important person. That you show her, you know, as much as you'd like to do this, you show her that there's no rush and you will do it at her pace. Because it's the person that's the sub in a cuckolding scene, whether it's cuck gold or cuck queen, they're running the most emotional risks. And they really, like the subs in any other BDSM or power play scene, they need to drive it. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and that's how I've made it clear to her. I've made it clear that it's at her pace. And, you know, whenever she's uncomfortable, we'll take a step back, whether it's the step forward where we, you know, swipe through Tinder for a little while and she was uncomfortable. So we took a step back. And mm -hmm. I try to make that very clear that, that, you know, it's at your pace when you're comfortable. Well, you can make it, you know, a large mistake that I think a lot of people make when they talk about getting with a third for the first time is we're going to get with a third and we're going to do everything. All the sex that we talked about will happen. And you can say there are baby steps and there are increments with a third, like the first times we get with a third, there doesn't have to be vaginal intercourse. The first times we get with a third, it can just be some making out and rolling around in front of you with that other person. And then we fuck. You can dip your toe into a third and people never really think about that. They think, okay, well, now we're having sex with a third. Everything's on the table. Everything that we might do with each other is now going to happen with this other person. And if somebody's a little uncomfortable about that first threesome, that can be scary to give everything to that other person or allow their partner to do everything with that other person. And if you say, you know what, that first time with the other person, it's going to be this small thing and this small thing and nothing else. And then you stick to that and you don't attempt to renegotiate during the scene. You know, you get a little excited and maybe you want to go farther. You don't do it. You don't go any farther. You don't push. 
in the moment when your partner may feel pressured then to agree so as not to kill the mood or the party or look uh, insecure or uh, like the buzzkill in front of the your very special guest star, no pushing for more, no renegotiating in the moment, stick to the agreement of dipping that toe in, but not dipping the dick in. You know what I mean? Uh, and Absolutely. then your wife will see, or your partner, you know, this applies to everybody out there who's thinking about three ways. Your partner will see that they can trust your word, that you will go at their pace, that you will always have in the front of your mind, their comfort and their primacy in the relationship. And as excited as you might be to be with another person, you're not going to, push things past their comfort zone out of there. You're not going to push them out of their comfort zone. Right. Which is just what I want. I don't want, you know, I definitely do not want to push that out of her comfort zone, but it's fine to let her know that you would like to realize this fantasy. Okay. That's perfect. That's, I think that's where I fault a lot of myself. I, you know, don't always speak up for what I, my wants and needs when I'm worried about taking care of her and her back and stuff. But the flip side of, you know what? I would like to realize this fantasy someday when you're ready not a moment before when you're ready. And there's small baby steps ways for us to tiptoe up to realizing it in toto. Like we see in a lot of this porn there, there's a spectrum. There's, there are degrees, um, but I would like to realize it, but I won't until you're ready to, until you want to, too. But that's the conversation. That's the, you actually need to put that out on the table that you would like to realize it so that there is really some drive to this conversation reassuring her constantly that you're not going to realize it until she's ready to realize it and unpicking the lock of how realizing it may tap into insecurities of hers or feelings of inadequacy that you're going to have to be able to address before, even during and after an encounter with another person. Okay. That's great. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Good luck. Thank you. Bye. Hi, Dan. I am a college student. I'm a senior a heterosexual woman, and I am currently dating this guy. Um, we started dating around uh, Christmas time, and it was really great. He was super sweet. We really got along. But lately, I've noticed that he's almost like not giving me as much attention or almost like, you know, he got me or he won me over, and now he doesn't really put as much effort as he used to. And there have also been incidents where we are both drinking and we're hanging out with friends, and he become, he starts acting very rude to me and it makes me very uncomfortable or I'll be speaking and saying something and he'll tell me to be quiet. Um, and last night we were hanging out with some friends and he took one of my friends home. He drove her home and he was telling her that he doesn't like how I get very argumentative or outspoken when I'm drunk, which I find an issue with. And I think there's a bit of a power struggle. So I don't really know what to do. I think he wants me to be submissive, but that's just not something I'm willing to do. So what do you think I should do? Oh, man. I'm not sure what to tell you to do. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do in a situation like this with a call like this. I'm supposed to tell you to dump the motherfucker already. I'm supposed to tell you he's a sexist, controlling piece of shit and an asshole and you would be well rid of him. But there's a little voice in my head that is telling me I need to complicate that advice and I need to not tell you to stay with this guy if he's a piece of shit and an asshole and he very well could be and he might be and this might be all the evidence we need that he is. But it has been my personal experience that there are people out there who, when they drink, my personal experience in relationships, romantic, my personal experience with family, that there are some people out there who, when they drink, they get argumentative and they get aggressive and it can be awkward and uncomfortable 
for all involved. And so he might be an asshole, but he also might be an asshole who has a point and he's delivering it to you in a not very constructive or passive aggressive way that disqualifies him from being considered any further as a romantic partner. But I think you should ask your friends right before, right after you dump this guy to level with you, to let you know if they think that you are different when you drink. If you do get aggressive, if you do get loud, if you do get confrontational, if mixing you and booze together is a problem or has been a problem, or if there's a certain point past which, you know, the third or fourth drink where it becomes a problem, because this is a thing. This is a thing that happens in addition to it being a thing that some guys are controlling and rude and sexist and put a lot of effort into landing a, a woman. And then once they've got her begin to do everything they can to dismantle her self-esteem so as to make her dependent on him, so as to convince her consciously or subconsciously that she can't do any better than him. And it's a way to really take control over someone. That is a thing that happens. It is also a thing that happens that some people, when they drink, they turn into assholes. Instant asshole, just add alcohol. Have you ever seen that t-shirt? I'm not saying you're an asshole. I'm not saying you're argumentative. I don't know you. This guy could be lying. This could be his way of, again, attempting to take control, to, to destroy your self-esteem, to make you self-conscious. And I think you should get rid of him. Err on the side of he's an asshole and get rid of him. But then you've got to do your due diligence. You've got to make sure that you're in good working order, not for this guy, for the next guy. And you do that by going to your trusted friends and saying, second, third, fourth drink in, am I an asshole? Do I get argumentative? Does it bother you? Please tell me. And I won't be argumentative and I won't be an asshole about it because I'm not drunk right now. And if I need to do a little work in this area, I will. And I'll do it single. All right, before we get to some response calls, here are some of your tweets. Juliet tweets, as per Dan Savage's advice, we hashtag fucked first before heading out for hubby's B-Day supper. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Good for you, Juliet. Thanks for the shout out. My apologies to everyone for failing to mention in the run up to Valentine's Day that everybody should fuck first. That's my advice, whether it's Valentine's Day or your wedding or just your regular old run of the mill date night. Don't go out to eat and stuff yourself with lots of heavy food and wine and dessert and then go home expecting to get laid because you're not going to get laid. You're going to go home in a food coma and fall asleep and be disappointed. Fuck first, build up an appetite, then go out to eat and drink and have dessert and then go home and crash guilt-free. Franco Pup tweets, interesting to hear about the idea from at fake Dan Savage on the latest hashtag Savage Lovecast about a mass dick pic reveal amnesty purge style. You first, Dan. Hey, not just dick pics. I was talking about all sorts of sexy pics, not just dick pics, also puss pics, also tit pics, also butt pics. But I'm shy. Anyone who's been to my Instagram account, as opposed to, say, my husband's Instagram account, will note that there are almost no pictures of me on my Instagram account. So I don't feel like I'm being a hypocrite, releasing lots of pictures of me, but not those pictures of me. I don't release really any pictures of me. I think that everyone who isn't shy about releasing their photos generally should go first, and then maybe I will be tempted to jump in as well. 
And finally, Edward Ariola tweets at Fake Dan Savage. I was listening to hashtag Savage Lovecast with the guy who's into his new doctor. I'd say no, hell no, don't hit on your therapist, doctors, or healthcare providers. It puts them at risk. Even if they wanted to, they could lose their license over it. Of course, something to bear in mind. Thank you for your tweets. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming installment of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now some of your response calls, your second opinions for callers from past shows. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the female caller in episode 642 who finally told her partner how much money she makes, and he was shocked uh, at that number. I think you forgot to mention there's another thing that could happen. There's a lot of people out there, and my wife and I kind of had this uh, talk when I got my latest job, who feel like they work so hard out there, and they see a number that someone else is making and they just feel like no matter how hard they're going to work, they're never going to make that much money. And it, at some point it just feels really hurtful, not about that other person, but just about society. Like my wife is a social worker basically, and she makes a fifth of what I do work tech company. And it's like, there was this point in time when we talked about how much more money I was making and she just kind of had the same expression on her face and kind of broke down crying basically about the same topic. Like she doesn't feel valued in not our relationship, but in society based on how much money I make compared to her and others like me make compared to her and others like her. So that's one other take. Hey Dan, this is just a comment for the caller in episode 640 who had an erotic dream about her brother uh, I just thought she might like to know that this is so common. So there's a reference to it in a 2,500-year-old play, Sophocles' Oedipus the King, who uh, it said, you're not the first man to sleep with his mother in his dreams. Now, that's actually his mother saying that to him. Uh, she doesn't realize it at the time. But, I mean, if the ancient Greeks 2,500 years ago were talking about how common it was to sleep with family members in their dreams, I really wouldn't worry about it. Hi, Dan, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Long-time listener and fan here, and I'm a medical student. I'm calling in reference to episode 642 about the man who has a runny nose every time he gives a blowjob, which you attributed to erectile tissues in his nose, uh, secreting pre-cum. Yeah, no. A key part of the gagging reflex is excess production of saliva. As anyone who's ever vomited knows, you get that rush of saliva in your mouth before you yak. So what's likely happening here is as this guy is gagging on dick, all that excess saliva is going to the back of his throat. And it's either being pushed up into his nose and draining out, or he's swallowing it. So a natural solution to this problem is to swallow much more frequently while you're giving a blowjob, therefore preventing it from going up into the nose. Alternatively, this guy might just have congested sinuses. As he's leaning forward to give a blowjob, he's actually making it much easier for his maxillary sinuses to drain. And this could result in excess nasal discharge. So, a natural solution to this problem would be to take a decongestant a few hours before giving blowjobs, or give blowjobs with your head in the vertical position. That is to say that a good old-fashioned face-fucking might just be the thing that this guy needs. Happy dick-sucking. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. 
This week, my Dirty Little Film Festival Hump is heading to the Bay Area. We are showing the very best of Hump in Oakland. This is a special showcase with some of our very favorite Hump films from the last 10 years of Hump. The new Hump Film Festival is also touring the country. The 2018 films. Go to humpfilmfest.com for information about when Hump is coming to a city near you. Also coming to a city near you. Me, Savage Love Live, Portland, Vancouver, Seattle, Denver, San Francisco, Chicago, Madison, Minneapolis, Toronto, and Somerville, Massachusetts. I am coming to you. Go to SavageLoveCast.com and click on events for dates and tickets to upcoming tapings of the Savage Lovecast in the city near you. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. A big thank you again to Dr. Lucy Platt for joining us on the Lovecast. Follow the East London Project on Twitter at EastLND.com project. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.